Months ago, I really on. All right, I'll start. Five, four, three, two. A couple of months ago, I gave a sermon on the will of God. Some of you, I was encouraged this week, even when I brought it up, someone remembered. That was exciting. And I made a distinction within understanding that one will of God, the two aspects that we learn in Holy Scripture of God's one and immutable and perfect will, and that is His decretive will on the one hand and His preceptive will on the other. His preceptive will, as you might think in terms of precepts, preceptive will, is that rule of life expressed in Holy Scripture. That is, unfortunately, as we think of the will of God for our lives, that will which is most oftentimes disobeyed. On the other hand, as we think of the one will of God and its aspect as He speaks to us in Holy Scripture, we think of that decretive will. That is, the will of God whereby He purposes whatsoever comes to pass. One last, if I might. The decretive will of God is that will of God whereby He purposes whatsoever comes to pass. A couple weeks after that one sermon on the will of God, as we thought about it, the catechism, as we're working through the Westminster Shorter Catechism this year, a couple of weeks following our time discerning the will of God and considering that decretive aspect, that is, that God purposes whatsoever comes to pass. The question from the catechism is this, how does He execute His decrees, though? So again, we're thinking of His decrees, that He purposes whatsoever comes to pass. The question is, how though does God execute His decrees? The answer in the catechism, if you recall, is, quote, God executes His decrees in the works of creation and providence. We then define providence in the will of God for our lives, for all of creation. We define providence as God's upholding. I really want you to key on, on, in on this thought of providence. We define it as God's upholding, directing, and governing all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least. In other words, nothing is outside of God's most holy and wise purposes. Sometimes we can think, this is for a theological classroom. Why do we have to think so hard about God's will and how it's working? And if there's a preceptive and a decretive and how He then brings all into conformity with that which He has determined will actually occur. Why why are we wrestling with these things? Why must we embrace so clearly that nothing is outside of God's most holy and wise providence? Because understanding this, if I can persuade you, understanding this sense of God's purpose, and governance, not over some things, but over 
all things. Provides the mundane with meaning. Provides difficulty and trial with a sense of mercy. And it marks our journey as pilgrims in this age. In these, as the New Testament says, last days. It provides our journey with hope. You see, this is why we can say, and we do regularly, I trust, and we've sang it also. There's a song that we teach even to the children, and we know ourselves. But God's glorious providence is why we can say with the Psalter, each and every day, this, today, is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. We can say this because God governs it. He has purposed each and every step within it for my life. Therefore, life is not actually mundane. It is packed with meaning, the difficulties. I can actually, by faith, experience joy and trial. I can experience mercy and difficulty, and I can, all things, both up and down, see my one pilgrim's journey with sure hope ahead of me. And this morning, I want us to see how the story of Jesus' birth Interesting, on Palm Sunday, as begins Passion Week, as we consider it, we're actually at the birth narrative of our Lord this morning, and yet I want us to see in the birth narrative, the story of Jesus' birth, how this text, by Luke's design, so clearly instructs us that God upholds, directs, and governs not some creatures, but all creatures, not some actions, but all all actions, and not some things, but all things, for the greatest, even to the least, for the accomplishment of his redeeming purposes. Consider right off the bat, if you will, the power of Caesar Augustus. Look at the text, if you would, with me. I want to read verses 1 through 3, and then I want to kind of show you a little instructional map here so that we can wrap our minds around God's governing providence from all things, from the greatest even to the least. Consider the power of Caesar Augustus in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinus was the governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. If you could uh, put up the map there. Okay, great. So at this point in time, you're seeing the entire Roman world in the first century that upholds this text. It gives you a sense of meaning now as you're reading the biblical text. So, so Christ is going, Jesus is going to be born into this Roman world right here is all you see. And you don't need to worry about the key. I know none of us can read it and you don't need to worry about it. I'm not pulling one over on you. The idea is it marks how those provinces and so on and so forth came to be in a long timeline. 
take the big picture with me. All that you see there in the colors of uh, pink, maybe we'll call it, um, purple, green, yeah, in the red outline at the bottom there near the desert, all that's outlining there is the Roman world. This gives you a sense of his power. Let me just give you a little bit of a background to the rise of Caesar Augustus. Again, we've heard this story read surely at Christmas time, right? Consider the impact and the power of Caesar Augustus. Historically speaking, Caesar Augustus is the title confirmed upon, and many of you probably know this from Roman history or uh, better students of uh, Roman history than I, but the idea is, uh, historically, Caesar Augustus is the title conferred upon a Roman ruler named Octavian. So now think Octavian when you see the text, Octavian, and then it became Caesar Augustus. In the early 40s B.C., so uh, B.C. is counting toward the birth account of the year of our Lord. So go from the year of our Lord as we're considering it in this particular text and go 40 in the other direction. In the early 40s, Octavian controlled the entire Roman world of the West. So you're, you're looking here and you're going West. So, um, and we have a pointer, which we don't get much use out of, so I'm just going to use it a little bit. Um, so here, here, I think this is the second map I've used in eight years, so um, not a lot of this, but here it is. The entire Roman world of the West, while Cleopatra and Anthony controlled the Roman world of the East, relations, as you can imagine, between two superpowers. Consider the entire Roman world split down the center, and here you have uh, Octavian, here you have Anthony and uh, Cleopatra. They meet right here, if you see that. So almost smack dab in the middle. What typically becomes in our day and age between two superpowers, or maybe we're watching it play out in the news ad nauseum between what we might break down into the Democrats and the Republicans? The two tend to fall out in relationships. I think we could say that quite fairly as well as that's nothing new. The relationship between the two superpowers ran sour, causing the war of 31 BC, the Battle of Actium, right battle of Actium right here, between all of them and all of them to meet right here and decide who gets it all. Well, as the text goes on, you clearly know who prevailed. Through militaristic power, Octavian defeated Cleopatra and Anthony and thereby consolidated his power and became the first sole ruler or what we know as the first emperor of the Roman world. Octavian became the indisputed supreme ruler of all of Rome. So that's it. He won. And this here, sorry for the bouncing, this here is the, in the first century, the entire world. So if you look in your text, you see, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. You have an idea now of what they mean, certainly as you would think of it, whether you're in Galatia over here or whether you're over here in this portion of Italy near Rome. All of the world, as far as you're considered, is under the power of Caesar Augustus. At this point, his name is still Octavian. 
So he beats uh, Cleopatra and Anthony in the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. Four years later, after being the military champion in the indisputable or undisputed world champion, four years later, the Roman Senate conferred upon Octavius the title Augustus, or August One. Octavian is now what means August One, which means the revered or exalted one. Octavian is the very first Caesar Emperor Augustus one. A small little footnote at this point in history is worth noting. As you continue to read the rest of your New Testament portion, you see what that meant to the early church in the first century. Emperor worship began to lay its foundation at this point in time. Oh, August one. It took on its own cult, as you would know, as it moves forward in history. In the early church, you can read of in the book of Hebrews, you can look at the book of Revelation, and you can see its devastating effect upon the early church. Emperor worship. Who is it, guys? Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord? You see the difficulty in the first century church. Its foundations were laid when Octavian, or the August one, Caesar began to consolidate the power of the entire Roman world. At this point, in the text of verse 1, Caesar, no longer Octavian, is in control of the entire Roman world of the first century, or as the first century individual felt, as far as they knew, he rules the entire world. And at this point in time, he sends out a decree for everyone to be registered. Now, at this point, all the people to be registered is uh, a process of about five years, roughly five years. Everybody head to your home place of birth and register. We'll get to that a little bit further down the road. As we join in the text with Caesar Augustus telling the entire world underneath his power as the August one himself, you must be registered for I am to be revered and I am the exalted one. Confirmed from the Roman Senate, all the world must obey my decrees. Yet, little does Octavian know that even the most powerful men, all of the world's superpowers, all of the populace on the earth, are subject to the prevailing providence of God. Octavian, all he knows, and the only oxygen he breathes is power, control, rule, subjugation. But Octavian himself is subject to the prevailing providence of God. For God does not govern some things or some people, but all things and all people. Neither is this a singular event in Scripture, God's prevailing providential power. Think of this in light of your own life. I'll highlight one just additional story from the text of Scripture. You don't need to turn there, but many of you are probably reading your Bible through uh, in a year's time, or or you join those tracks and at least attempt to do so, and then, you know, schedule takes place. You know, it's, it's it's like a diet. 
you're, you're on it and off it, kind of the idea of, again, the disciplines of reading through the text in a year. But if you are, kind of, you've read through the Genesis portion and you think, again, is Octavian a singular story? Is it that just we see Octavian is going to be subject to the prevailing providence of God? That is, Caesar Augustus is under his control. Is this a one-time event, an extraordinary birth narrative? Or does this kind of happen all the time? Scripture is filled with manifold witness to the truth of God's prevailing providence over every creature. Think back in Genesis that you read a couple of months ago. Think of Joseph and his brothers. Many of you can recall this story, and I want to highlight it just as a way to recall the extraordinary providential power of God in the lives of his people. I'll just briefly footnote the story for you as we pass through it in our minds. Again, many of you probably read it just recently, but you recall, even if you heard it in Sunday school class or if you are new to it, let me just highlight to you that Joseph himself, loved of his father, was, as you recall, sold by his brothers to the Ishmaelites. If you look back over that text and you can look in the book of Genesis, if you noted there that one of the brothers recalls, uh uh-oh, Don't you recall, and if you read the text, it says he begged for his life and he experienced great distress of soul. Of course, we're standing here thinking that was then and so far removed, it's hard to conceptualize that someone sold their brother. Um, And yet, can you think of the terror that laid in Joseph's soul? He's being sold by his brothers to a band of men passing by, to who knows what's going to happen to him next. Joseph certainly at that point isn't rejoicing in his providence. But he says he experienced distress of soul. A man sold by his brothers to the Ishmaelites, and then it got worse long before it ever got better. And if you're reading this story for the very first time, you'd see it is not looking good for Joseph. He is accused of attempted rape. You think, my goodness, sold already, taken out of the land of his father, living among the people who are not his own, ends a service job in a dignitary's home, and what happens next? He's accused of rape and tossed into prison. Again, it's hard to conceptualize, isn't it, because we're so far removed. This young man was living a nightmare. While in prison, if you recall, he interpreted a couple of dreams there, one where a cupbearer was restored to his office. I can't go into all the details, just to say, Joseph was gifted by the grace of the Holy Spirit to be able to interpret dreams. He interpreted the dreams that told the providence to another man, you're going to be restored. It was a fellow inmate, a cupbearer before Pharaoh. You're going to be restored to your place of honor. Uh, I think it was the the, the food tester, on the other hand, you're going to die, is what your dream means. But either way, you, the cupbearer, you're going forward. You're going to be restored. And certainly, guess what the cupbearer told him at that point in time? Well, I won't forget this. I won't forget you here. I will remember. And when I'm restored, if it truly happens to me and I am restored, I will remember you. Joseph saying, hey, when you leave, remember me. I mean, I'm down here. Oh, yeah, 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 I will. If you read the account, you see that it is a promise that goes for a long portion of time broken. He indeed is restored, and Joseph's still in prison. 
sold by his brothers, accused of attempted rape, of which he did not use or, or do, placed in prison, and then given an opportunity, and one who says, I will remember, has forgotten. At that point in time, you've got to think that Joseph in the text is experiencing this tremendous turmoil that God indeed is against me. Many of us have a feather land in our path, and we're ready to claim it even then. I alone, God is set against me. Here is Joseph sitting in prison, the long, hard time of being forgotten by the cupbearer, thinking indeed that the providence of God is not at work. Little does he know that Pharaoh across town, having nothing to do with Joseph at this point in the story, Pharaoh is having, guess what? A distressing dream. God does not govern simply some people, some things, but all people and all things and their actions, from the least, that is Joseph in prison, and to the greatest, that who is Pharaoh. Pharaoh has this distressing dream. Interesting, isn't it, that Joseph was already noted as a dream interpreter. So says the cupbearer to Pharaoh. Hey, that's right. Pharaoh says, I am having a distressing dream. The providence of God at work on behalf of his people. He says to the cupbearer, I'm having a difficult time understanding these. Do you know anyone who can interpret this dream for me? Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. I forgot somebody. Um, He can tell you the dream. Do you see the hidden hand of God and the smiling providence to Joseph who was in jail? Do you see that Joseph did nothing to affect the change of providence? And that God was being merciful, patient, and kind to Joseph. Oh, I forgot. There's somebody I was supposed to mention to you. He can interpret dreams. How weird that, like, I had a dream and I met him and he interpreted mine, and you're having dreams, and you need a dream interpreter. I'm going to tell you about Joseph. Joseph is called in by this tremendous unfolding of providence when indeed Joseph, a young man imprisoned, falsely feels he has been forgotten. Joseph was remembered and brought before Pharaoh. Long story, which I will make longer. No, I'm cutting it short. I I, I always have it typed out shorter than it goes. You know how it is. Joseph is placed in charge to be father to Pharaoh. He rightly interprets the dream. He is placed as father to Pharaoh, he says. I am Lord of his household, he tells his brothers later. And then he speaks of himself as becoming the ruler of over all the land of Egypt. I was imprisoned and forgotten. I now rule over the land that I was sold to. Now you might think then the brothers who sold him, whatever happened to them? And then yet again, another extraordinary story of providence sends them back to Egypt. And it is a tremendous story. As you have read it, if you have not, please do. It's a tremendous story if you see the work of God, not over some, but over all. Not over just the few and the small, but over all and the great. The brothers appear before Joseph, and you can think that would be an awkward meeting. Here's Joseph, who is Lord of Egypt, and the brothers who come begging for food. 
and you think, I know what I would do. I would see my executioners lie at hand. Only now I'm going to be the executioner upon them. You sold me. You know what you did. And so we're all kind of thinking, oh, definitely. You'd be just in doing so. But Joseph says this. Here's the brothers kneeling before Joseph. And he says, be not distressed. You remember earlier in the text, though, if you read the narrative, it says, what was Joseph? What was Joseph's exact experience? Distress of soul. So he says to the brothers, be not distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Why not? And Joseph speaks to our text as well and to our lives in the very next statement. For God sent me here. And let's just be clear. I I, I know you sold me as a secondary cause. I I know that I was falsely accused and imprisoned. I have experienced a great distress of soul and sadness. I have anguish over my life, and I went through traumatic experience. But God sent me here. Be not distressed or angry with yourselves. So he goes on. So it was not. Let's just be clear. So it was not you. Who sent me here? You got to think they're kneeling down, begging for their lives, and they're looking up thinking, what? Joseph firm about his convictions. It was not you who sent me here, but God. As for your part to play in it, as for you, you meant evil against me. Let's don't forget it. I'm not going to pretend it away. You, as for your part, you meant evil against me. But in every dark and difficult providence, God is at work. Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it, the exact same event meant it for good. You see, this is the point of our text in considering the power of Caesar Augustus. Or as we conceive of it in our day and age, either on a macro level, governments and everybody's worried about what's about to happen to the great republic, or what's happening over in North Korea, or what's going to happen over in Iran, or what's going to take place in every one of the stands in between. Whatever is to occur, for the people of God, we see again and again and again in the text of Holy Scripture, whether it's Joseph's brothers, whether it's the Ishmaelites, Potiphar, in whose home he was accused falsely, whether it's Pharaoh at the very top or in our text, Octavian. God manifestly shows that his governing all of his creatures 
His governing of all of their actions is meticulous, meaningful, merciful, and hopeful for the people of God. Consider just briefly what obstacle you face. None of you, at least as of 10, 15, 11, 15, are falsely imprisoned. It's a good thing. You're here, sitting. What is it that you are challenged with spiritually, besetting sin? What is it that you're challenged with physically, sickness and weakness? What is it that you're challenged with emotionally, relationally? What is it you're challenged with economically, physically, at the place of employment, or if you'll have one, and what it'll be like and if it'll meet your needs? Consider God's providence. He manifestly shows to you in the text of Holy Scripture that His governing is meticulous. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't been caught off guard. This must give you hope, mercy, and a sense of peace about your lives in God's providence. Now consider back in our text how God uses not even just Octavian's conquering and ruling over and uses his power, but even uses his decrees. You see, God positions Caesar in our text to rule over. He is the august one. Octavian, now known as Caesar Augustus, ruling over all as far as the first century considers it. He rules the world. But notice how, again, he is no exception to the rule. He, too, is in subjection to the purposes and providence of God. Notice the text once again, verse 1, in those days, a decree. And that's what we're going to focus on just for a moment here. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This, too, is in the providence and purpose of God. The decree to be registered, if you're thinking of what it is, again, it's roughly taking place about about, about a five-year span. And if you consider, again, the map we had, I don't, I don't need it now. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a mistake. It was perfect. I'm not referencing it to put it back up. Um, if you consider that, okay, thanks. Uh, I, I asked Dan yesterday, like, middle of the afternoon, hey, could I use a map tomorrow? <laughs> and it's always well put together, and then I use a slide the midnight hour, but they accommodate. So the idea is here it took roughly five years for everyone to kind of get from wherever they were working at the time and whatever life they were living provisionally if they were not at their own place of home they needed to find and lie back down and settle back down into the places they were born what was the point of it though caesar established during his rule over all of this he was quite the leader he established a massive centralized government strong currency, broad trade, and a strong military. But as we're experiencing in our day and age in the current debate, you know what comes next, don't you? (laughs) Somebody has to pay for all of it. So now we're getting ready to fist fight each other over, you know, what taxation system is great, what tax codes can we simplify, can we flat tax? Hey, what, flat tax? Forget about it, you know, however we're handling it. 
Somebody's got to pay for all of it. And this is not a new problem. Caesar faced the same thing. So the easiest way to implement a taxation system is to force your people to go back to their place of birth. By registration, of course, as we do each and every year, yes, I have this many in my household. Yes, I work this job. Yeah, it kind of pays. This is how much I made. Good, give us half of it. Okay, fine. But the registration process is to simply know that. Where do the people live? How many people do we actually rule over? How many are taken care of? How many are receiving on the dole from what we're providing? Everybody, penny up. Find out how many people are there, where they live, and what they do for work. Here, yet again, step back and appreciate in this text. This is not a random decree that goes out. It isn't outside the perfect and meticulous and hopeful providence of God. You see, Caesar Augustus is utilized in the will of God for the accomplishment of his absolute redeeming purposes. Let me show you how God is using this registration in a twofold purpose, and this is how we'll conclude our time in the text this morning. Here we begin to see, again, with this registration to go out for what, what Caesar thinks is a, 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 a taxation program. He sees it as a monetary return. God in his decrees and in his providence of that very decree by an underling, Caesar Augustus, who rules the world. God is using it to accomplish his purposes. It isn't simply about money and taxation. It's actually about redemption and the coming Messiah. How so? Notice two ways in which the registration serves the purposes of God in the text. Thus, Luke includes it. He gives us a historical note in verse 2 that this is the same time, this is the first registration when Quirinus was governor of Syria. So that would be um, in here. here here's, so here's a governance, nation-state area. Uh, here is Rome, and, and here was the battle of Actium, and this is all that he's ruling over. So Luke is just simply noting what was taking place during this time. By the way, you know another historical marker that you might be certain of the things you've heard. It establishes, however, in this text that all, verse 3, all went to be registered, each to his own town. Okay, great. What does that mean for us? We'll notice in verse 4. And Joseph, this is where the story narrows in the providence of God. Joseph, this little, this single individual, Joseph also went up from Galilee because he has to register at his own town. Caesar is a primary force. No, 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 no. He is a secondary source. God is using this decree to mobilize Joseph. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth. That is the place where he was, to Judea. Oh, what does it matter? What what are we getting at here in the providence of God? This is what it's mobilizing him, unto the city of David. That's a huge marker in your text. That's what Luke's getting at. Do you see? Caesar is being used for the furtherance of redemption, the coming of the Lord. Joseph has to go to the city of David. And I want you to know something about the city of David and why Joseph had to go there. Verse 4, which is called Bethlehem. Because, let me emphasize for your sake, he had to go to the city of David, you know, Bethlehem, because Most importantly, he was of the house. And, in case you missed it, 
lineage of David. You see, he's peppering us. Let me footnote one other thing. You recall when Joseph was introduced in the previous narrative, the, uh, the, the birth narrative foretold. Um, the first thing we learned about Joseph before we looked into his humble estate and uh, the life that he led as a, as, a, as a carpenter of sorts, verse 27 speaks of him in the smallest little thing you need to know and mark in your head as a reader in chapter 1 was that he was what? Of the house of David. Now, Luke is grabbing you like this and shaking you like this. He's going to Bethlehem, to the city of David, you know, because he's of the house of David, you know, the lineage of David. I know I've got you all on the edge of your chairs. But the registration of Joseph in the city of David, because he was of the house and lineage of David, establishes beyond controversy that Jesus, his son, who is born in his house, the registration proves his son belongs to the royal line of David. This is crucial Because in order for Jesus to be the promised king over his people, he must be, without argument, a direct descendant of King David. How can we we go about, in brick and mortar, proving that? Ah, a registration... Oh, the mighty hand of God's providence. 1 Samuel 7, again, to its meticulous nature. Caesar did not catch God by surprise, but his decree is being used for the mobilization and the fulfillment of his redeeming purposes. 1 Samuel 7, I will raise up for you an offspring after you. And this was read last week, but you recall, this is why it had to be in Bethlehem who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. This word of God to David, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Jesus had to belong to that house, and it must be provable. Secondly, and this is my final thing this morning, not only does God use the decree of Caesar for the establishment of the kingship of Christ, it establishes his kingly credentials. It is beyond controversy at that point if he belongs to Joseph. If he belongs to Joseph, he belongs to David. If he belongs to David, he very quite possibly could be, and of which we'll later find out, he quite possibly could be the Messiah that was promised. The second thing that this registration proves or establishes, which displays the meticulous and purposeful providence of God, not over some creatures, but over all creatures and their actions and their decrees, as it establishes Jesus as the Savior of His people, not only as King, because He is of the house of David, of the lineage of David, in the city of, you know, David, but He is also the Savior of His people. 
Join with me in the text once more before I summarize how so. Join with the text in verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So he went there to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And verse 7 clarifies, she gave birth to her firstborn son. Where? Where did she give birth? To the one who will later in his ministry declare that he is sent of the Father, that he and the Father are one, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father but by me. He gave birth in Bethlehem. Or I should say, he was birthed in Bethlehem. Why is that so significant? Well, first, it is again a noteworthy result of the consensus and the mobilizing of God's people in the accomplishment of his purpose. Mary and Joseph found themselves, get ready to be blown away, they found themselves in Bethlehem. Again, this is critical because of Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you. You see how important that is. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origins are from of old, who is from ancient days. And he, this one born in Bethlehem, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and he shall be their peace. Born not somewhere, born in Bethlehem. You see, In order for Jesus, as we will celebrate in this week coming up, as we look toward our Monday Thursday gathering, our time of sacrament and and covenantal meal, one with another, as we look toward the fulfillment of what Christ will do in His active and passive obedience for us, in order for Him to fulfill such active and passive obedience to redeem his people in order that Christ Jesus of Nazareth be the shepherd of his sheep when he says he is, in order that he be the one who lays down his life for them. He had to be the rightful heir of David who was born not somewhere but born in Bethlehem. Surprise, surprise, the glorious providence of God. 
Look at verse 6 again. By now you're no longer caught off surprise, I imagine, right? They're in Bethlehem in verse 5. And verse 6 says, And while they were there, you don't say. The time came for her to give birth. By now, you're reading the story and saying, of course the time came for her to give birth when they were in Bethlehem. And that's exactly what occurred that, that day in Bethlehem. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You see, the providence of God, as you see it in this text, as you recall it across all the texts of Holy Scripture, as you see it in Joseph, as you find yourself somewhere in there as well. The providence of God has brought you to this place this morning. It has brought you here to be with the people of God on Lord's Day worship. It brought you here to hear the text of Holy Scripture preached. It brought you here to sing the songs of the redeemed. And it's lying upon you now to respond by faith to what you have heard. For the saint, it is your privilege and your safety each and every day to be under the agency of omnipotence, under the agency of righteousness, under the agency of wisdom, as he looks upon you under the agency of patience, under the agency of mercy, and under the agency of grace, each and every day. To one this morning who may not be considering themselves a saint, that is, one who has placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed you this morning. A Christian. To one who cannot say this morning that my faith does rest not within me, not within my duties, not within my works, but squarely my faith does rest upon that sole object who is Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. The providence of God, again, has brought you this morning to hear the saving name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent of sin, to lay down that sense of self, to renounce it as righteousness, and to cling by faith outside of yourself unto the name and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this story in Holy Scripture that is utterly true in all that it records 
utterly true in all that is here for us to mine, to meditate upon, to receive, to rest upon. We thank you so much for the instruction that it gives to our meaningful existence now, that we're not haphazardly traveling through life, and we don't believe in simple random acts as though we believe there is no God, but Lord, we rejoice both in trial in some measure and in kindness that you benevolently place upon us each and every day. Thank you for your watchful hand. It isn't fate that is at work in the universe but it is your governance. It is your wise and perfect purpose. I pray for each one here, for the saint, that is the one who has trusted in Christ for the gathering of their soul for righteousness and the one who here has not trusted in Christ alone through faith by grace alone. Lord, your word by your spirit would do a work in their heart and their life that they too would recognize nothing is by fate, but everything is by providence and the working and purposes of God. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come up. We're going to go back and sing All Glory Be to Christ, song we sang a little earlier.